around that time when we were realizing we weren't going to be able to hit the actual monument um, and trying to plan what we were going to do instead, I realized that this whole thing was never about walking every step of the trail. It wasn't about, you know, making sure I had walked every single of those 2,653 miles. Um, it was about the experience. Welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast with myself, Owen Walker, and Lauren McKenna. In this interview, we're speaking with Becky Hartshorn on her successful completion of the Pacific Crest Trail. So the title of the podcast is The Adventure of a Lifetime Hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. So what we wanted to do in the podcast is just do a deep dive into what is America's second longest trail stretching from Mexico to Canada. And it stretches throughout the states of California, Oregon, and Washington. So the route takes in many of America's most scenic and varied terrains, from deserts to mountains to alpine plateaus. So the uh, Pacific Crest Trail, or the PCT, is 2,650 miles long. It starts in Campo, in a small town in the United States-Mexican border, and it goes stretched all the way through California, Oregon, Washington, before it reaches the northern terminus at the United States-Canada border. So the trail is divided into 30 sections, 18 sections in California, seven in Oregon, five in Washington. So the average length of each section is approximately about 91 miles. So to um, just to give you a quick bio on Becky Hartshorn, she's a junior clinical fellow, so an F5 doctor currently working in emergency medicine in Sheffield. So she, she's interested in wilderness and expedition medicine and has completed one of WEM's courses in Slovenia and is working uh, on her mountain leader qualification. She's also a keen hiker and wants to be able to keep racking up the miles as well as of having a career in emergency medicine. So welcome to the podcast, Becky. Thank you very much. I'm very uh, flattered that you wanted me to come on. Listen, it's great to uh, great to have you on with myself and Lauren. I think just as a starter, Becky, could you maybe just speak to, so this epic tr uh, hike in, uh, in, in the US, could you maybe speak to why you undertook this hike? Well, I've uh, lived, I live in the Peak District, so I've always had sort of a, a good outdoor area around me, um, and I kind of grew up hiking out there, uh, going on family walks at the weekend and things. Uh, and then I did my gold DV, like bronze, silver, and gold Duke of Edinburgh award uh, when I was at uni. Um, and it was when we did the gold expedition for that that I really kind of properly got into hiking because so we went up to the Isle of Mull uh, to do that, and that was just incredible. Um, and then I first found out about the Pacific Crest Trail, the PCT, I think it was about 2014. And that's when I went to work at a Girl Scout summer camp in California. And I think it was, I think it was there that I found out about it. Cause I've been asked the question a lot about where did you first hear about it? I can't exactly remember, but I'm pretty sure it must've been there. And ever since then, it's just fascinated me really. And I felt rather than why did I do it? I felt like I couldn't not do it. It's never really sort of left me. Uh, and in terms of why I chose to do it when I did, it was kind of just the most, the earliest convenient time I could do it really because you need to have a, a fair few months to be able to go and do it. And I was at medical school when I found out about it. So I couldn't really just take a year off med school quite, quite easily. Um, so my original plan was to do it in 2021, at which point I would have been um an f3 so i would have completed my foundation training i would have done another 
six months of being a, an F3 doctor. So I wouldn't have gone into any kind of training program um, and then taken six months or a year off to to go and, and do the PCT then. But um, unfortunately, there was a global pandemic, which got in the way of that. And uh, in 2021, the travel restrictions to the US were still uh, quite stringent and you couldn't just, just go and hike there. So hence why I did it in 2022. Um, so I just... I just wanted to go and do it to go and spend a long time hiking somewhere that I'd never been before um, and try and see as much of the the terrain that, that is around that area. A big challenge for yourself. Um, with that, what was the, the kit preparation like? So there's obviously the quality of the kit and, and indeed you've got to do some of the mental and bushcraft preparation. So what was sort of that like before the trip? A lot of the kit I did already have because um, I've, as I've mentioned, I've done quite a lot of hiking before. So I've done the West Highland Way in 2019, so that's up in Scotland. Um, and I bought a lot of the kit to do that and sort of just generally accumulated kit over a few years just through various um, weekends away and, uh, and little trips. So I already had my main things like my tent, my sleeping bag, uh, sleeping pad uh, and rucksack. So a lot of the um, the stuff that I had to buy was sort of the smaller things, um, the shoes that I was going to wear. Cause you, you get through several pairs of shoes because you cover in such a long distance. So sort of finding a pair of shoes that I liked that I could then get while I was out there as well when I needed new ones. Um the clothes, uh, the smaller things like a stove and a pot and things like that. Um, there's a lot of information out there. Once you start looking into the world of ultra lightweight gear, it becomes a total rabbit warren. Uh, and you find yourself spending hours and hours looking for the lightest long handled spoon or the the pair of socks that weigh the least or it's it becomes slightly ridiculous and then you have to have a bit of a reality check with yourself and realize at the end of the day it is just a pair of socks or whatever um so with kit preparation it was a lot of time spent reading online um and then ordering various things trying them out sending them back uh taking them on weekends away um and then yeah reading a lot of amazon reviews as well um in terms of bushcraft the you really although it's considered wilderness a lot of the trail you really don't need any um serious bushcraft skills to be honest you're not starting fires with twigs and stuff like that you've every, most people have quite high-tech kit um so you don't really need to go foraging for anything or um doing anything that requires much uh better grills style skills to be honest um the main preparation really is just making sure that you're familiar with your kit um that you know sort of your own limits as well of uh, keeping yourself safe when you're out there and um knowing what food you're going to want to eat as well because when you're away for that length of time you, you need to have a good few meals on rotation so you don't get completely sick of the same things um and, but the main preparation i did really was just going out and hiking testing my gear that um as I bought it um testing my own capabilities and and just going with that really when I did the West Highland Way that 
uh, told me quite a lot because that's that I did that over four and a half days that's 96 miles um and I did that by myself that was my first time using a few bits of uh, of gear that I bought and more than teaching me about my gear it taught me more about the the mental toll that hiking by yourself can have on you and that's not something I'd really anticipated until I did that but you spend a lot of your time alone on these hikes so even though uh, something like the PCT there are a few thousand people that do it every year and you know you're passing people all the time but a lot of your time you are by yourself um, with your own thoughts and that can get quite draining sometimes because you you just surfing around in your own thoughts and um struggling up a horrible mountain or it might be throwing it down with rain or whatever and sometimes you need a you need a little bit of a lift from um, a friend or or uh, another hiker just to, to help you that little bit so a sense of community is definitely something that's important and that's something that I um coming out of the West Highland Way but before going into the PCT was uh, sort of hoping for but you'll never feel fully prepared for something like this to be honest you that's almost part of the adventure you there's I spoke to a lot of people while I was out there who had done a hell of a lot of planning for you know exactly how many miles they were going to do each day um exactly the day they wanted to finish on and things like that and then you get out there and there's so many unpredictable things that you just realize that you can never be fully prepared but that's fine that's part of the part of the fun part of the adventure so Becky you make a really good point there around uh, preparation but also you growing into yourself through trips and learning about yourself learning about self-care mental resilience what you are prepared to go through what and, and indeed using an analog of comparison of what you have been through to fall forwards into bigger trips like the pct from the west west highland way but maybe could you speak to your sense of self-care ar- around food and shelter? It's sort of how you resupplied yourself, how you sort of how you um, packed for food, how you resupplied food, but also shelter and water. Yeah, so that's uh, one of the big things that people worry about or try to plan um, before they start is a resupply strategy, and there's so many different strategies that you can have um and it's something that you can plan as little or as much as you want really the trail itself doesn't go straight through many towns or or um sort of communities at all most of them that you have to access you access by uh, road so that at certain points the trail will cross some kind of road whether it's it does cross a few major highways or a couple of interstates uh, but a lot of the time they're sort of uh, dirt tracks or side roads and to get into town to resupply you rely on uh, hitching most of the time which the first time you do it is a bit scary uh, but you get so used to it it's your main form of um, of getting anywhere to be honest um, and most of the time you're with other people so it's not it's not too uh, too scary uh, but when you go into town uh, most of the towns had small grocery stores or uh, sometimes just a petrol station so most of the time you could make do with what they sold and a lot of these towns actually rely on uh, the hiking community for a lot of their um, their income into the town uh, so they know what hikers want from years of experience and they do stock um, a lot of things like instant mashed potato noodles um, protein bars the, the things that they know hikers will want to buy but some of the places are so small that there's not really 
much more than uh, a petrol station where you can get a few snacks. Uh, and when you're trying to do a seven-day food supply, uh, you, you kind of need more than uh, more than just a few chocolate bars. So what a lot of places do have, uh, even if they've not got um, a big supermarket, is a post office or a, even if it's not a post office, somewhere that will send out or receive packages. So what you tend to do at those places or before you get to those places is send a box so say I was in, um, there's a town quite near the start called Idlewild, um, that's sort of the first major major town that hikers access. They've got a brilliant supermarket there. So you'll buy your food that you're going to eat for the next five or six days or however much you're going to need to last you until the next town stop or the next decent resupply point. And what you also do is buy enough food to last for the section beyond that as well. And then you pack that second lot of food into a box and you ship it forward to yourself further up the trail. So that was how I did uh, quite a lot of my resupplying. What other people did is um, if they were from within the United States and were mega organized is pack all their boxes before they even left. Now, I think even if I lived within the US, I don't think I could deal with that level of preparation. Um, there's some there's some advantages of that in that you it's probably cheaper because you can bulk buy everything you know what you're getting uh, but there are some disadvantages in that if you have packed yourself four or five months worth of boxes and you've got instant mashed potato in all of them and then after week two on the trail you decide you hate instant mashed potato you're a little bit screwed um, unless you kind of just get rid of all that food so it, there's there's pros and cons. Um, I quite liked that I could just buy what I wanted uh, each time and only had to do a few of the, the sending boxes forward because um, it meant you could mix it up a little bit more than uh, than if you were sending all your boxes from home. Uh, in terms of shelter, most of the time it was just wild camping on the trail. You didn't have to book camp spots or anything like that. It's not really like um, a lot of the... European hiking trails where there's a hut system uh, that doesn't really exist on the PCT. There's the odd hut um, or uh, ranger's hut in some of the national parks that you can stay in. Um, but most of the time it's just wild camping or there's the odd campground, which may or may not be manned by um, by a ranger or something. Um, and occasionally they'll have a pit toilet in those campgrounds a lot of the time the pit toilets are gross and you'd just rather go and dig your own hole somewhere to be honest and then in town um most of the time I'd stay in a motel um, or B&B or something like that which can get expensive um that's why most hikers tend to share with other hikers or you stay with your friends that you've made by that point as well the other option for town is staying with people called trail angels so this is um a whole community of people that live near the trail or the, the town surrounding the trail and they um, open up their homes to, to hikers, uh, let them wash their clothes there, let them um, shower there and things like that. Um, and often it's just for the the, the cost of um, sharing a few stories and uh, maybe a, a monetary donation. Um, so that that's a way of keeping the cost down because that's often cheaper than staying in um, in the motels that are around the towns. That sounds really interesting and a lot of preparation goes into it even if you're not sending your packages forward the way you're saying there. Um, with that, you're while camping, um, what would you do for um, your water? So how would you 
make your water clean and clean enough to drink. So there are a few options like halogens, UV pens or filters. I, like most of the people on the trail, used um, a filter. So the one I used was called a soya squeeze, and that was the most popular one uh, that most people had. Uh, some people use gravity filters, like you can get a platypus one where it's just like a platypus bladder. You hang that from a tree and then it um, drains through into another bladder or bottle um, via a filter. Um, I saw a couple of people using purification tablets. Um, I don't think I saw anyone using the UV pens. Um, I think they've kind of got a little bit out of fashion, really. But yeah, the vast majority just had um, a smart water uh, plastic bottle, or a couple of those um, with the soya filter attached on top, and then you just squeeze it into another bottle. So most of the time we were getting our water from um, streams um, or lakes. Um yeah, just wild water most of the time. There were some long stretches where you would have to really plan where you were going to get your water because um, some of the, the sections were known to be quite dry, particularly down in the desert. So there were a couple of times I had to do 30, 40, 30 or 40 mile water carries. And that was pretty tough. You sort of carrying, I think the most I carried was six litres of water. And that's it's pretty grim because it's just water's so heavy. <laughs> Um, and on some of those longer uh, sections, we were lucky to have trail angels supplying water for that area. So a couple of times you'd come across these vast collections of, um, you know, those plastic water, um, cash things that you put on top of a, a water cooler in like an office. It's quite weird. You just, um, walking through the desert, you round a corner and then there's about 50, 60, blue canisters of, of water it's quite an odd sight but um a very um, one you're very grateful for at the time um but yeah most of the time you just you just gather in your own water and when you're in the the sierra so that's the, the highest elevation uh, area of the trail in the, the center of california i was told there that at the elevation that you're at a lot of the water is just pure snow melt and you don't you don't really need to filter it because there's such a slim chance of actually having any any sort of contaminant in it. But um, I always got too scared and I always filtered it. So Becky, just just looking at the financial implications of the trip, and you know you're away for a significant amount of time. It's it's definitely burdensome on kits. It's burdensome on supplies for food, shelter, water. Um, I guess my question is. Sort of when people are costing up a trip like this how much would you expect an overall spend to be on the pct that's something that can really vary um depending on how much money you have to spend in the first place obviously and um and how much you, you're willing willing to spend on the trip so there's uh, there's the expected cost that you can that you you know you will have to incur during your trip um so that's mainly food and accommodation and any transport that you need to either get to or from the trail or um, to various towns when you're on the trail. Now, food, I, food cost was something I underestimated a little bit, to be honest. Um, food prices in America are just a little bit crazy. And because I was eating about 5,000 calories a day, it, it got quite expensive, but you, you have no option other than to to buy it otherwise you're, you're not going to be able to complete your trip if you um not give yourself the calories that you need so yeah so uh, food accommodation transport was the main the main outgoings i had um 
the unexpected ones that people need to bear in mind that you may uh, incur are gear replacements. So I unfortunately had to replace my rucksack while I was out there. Um, it was it was an Osprey, so they do have um, a warranty scheme. It's actually pretty good. Um, they have a lifetime warranty. You get in touch with them. And if you're a through hiker, um, they try and send you a replacement pack to the next town you're going to be going through. Um, and then they send your old one off to, to try and uh, recycle it for, for further use. But unfortunately, the pack that I had, they didn't have any uh, replacement ones in stock. So I did have to... Um, fork out for a new one which was um a bit annoying but um definitely needed shoes are another thing um that i suppose they're probably an expected cost really because there's no way you can walk two and a half thousand miles in one pair of shoes most people wear trail runners um so they've got thinner soles than walking boots um and you tend to need to replace those every between four and six hundred miles is what's recommended really and then the other unexpected cost that um I'd tell people to watch out for is just medical costs. Uh, I was lucky enough that I didn't need any medical treatment or anything while I was out there. But um, particularly if you're an international uh, hiker going to hike in the US, it's just something you need to be aware of that uh, healthcare costs in the UK in the US can get uh, pretty expensive. Then the other things, if you're an international hiker, uh, would be flights, obviously, to get to and from the US. Um, and then also while you're there, transaction fees for the things that you're paying for if you're paying on card. So I actually got a, um, I set up a separate bank account with um, a bank that doesn't charge transaction fees when you're using the card abroad. And another way you can get around that is if you're sharing accommodation with hikers that are from the US, just get them to pay for the motel or whatever it is uh, and then pay them back in cash. Then so you can sort of avoid those uh, those fees. But in terms of how much um, people can anticipate to spend, I'd say including flights, if you're coming from outside the US, um, all your gear. So say you're starting with absolutely nothing, you're having to buy everything, tent, sleeping bag, everything. I'd probably say realistic cost is between eight and £10,000. Um, and that would be for, for everything from getting nothing to getting you back home after your trip. Um it's more than I thought I would spend, uh, but because I've been planning to do this for a long time and uh, saving for it for a long time, I was uh, fortunately able to to cope with the costs. Yeah, that sounds, uh, it's a big commitment, isn't it? Um, going away for that length of time. I mean, it's a, it's a big holiday, but uh, a challenging, challenging time. <laughs> it's not a holiday. <laughs> I will not accept it being called a holiday. <laughs> It was hard work, but it was fun. <laughs> no, that's that's very fair. That's very fair. Um, <laughs> can you um, talk about the different, like the diversity of terrain that you'll encounter over the over the two thousand six hundred and fifty miles? Yeah, um, with it being such a long distance, obviously you do you pass through a lot of different terrains. So um, Owen said at the start that the trail split into thirty sections, which is that's, that's correct. That's kind of how the maps are split if you um, buy the paper maps. Uh, but when you're on the trail, you kind of uh, think of it in five sections. So there's um, South California or the desert. Uh, there's the Sierra. There's North California. There's Oregon. And there's Washington. So they're the five sections that hikers tend to think of uh, when they're on the trail. Um, and as you pass through those, you just you, you see 
all terrains. And not only you go in a long way across, you also go a long way up and down. Um, the, the elevation on the trail really varies. So the lowest point on the trail is called Cascade Locks, which is um, just at the Oregon-Washington border, and that's only 140 metres above sea level. Uh, whereas the high point of the trail, which is in the Sierra, is Forrester Pass, and that's 13,153 feet. So that's... It, within that elevation you, you naturally see a lot of different terrains um so down at the desert uh which is the first section of the tra- of the trail from the mexican border um that was really surprising to me i kind of just expected it to be very arid dry uh, and just just sort of sand um but it was actually really green and really colorful uh i think it was probably the section that I saw the most colour in, which really surprised me. The there's a lot of cacti obviously and um, a lot of those had flowers on. Uh, there was a lot of different coloured rock um and a lot of green areas as well, which was really surprising. Then into the Sierra, which is the next section, that's sort of from around mile seven hundred, um, it becomes a lot a lot higher up in elevation. Uh, and with that you get a lot of changes. So Depending on the time you start, you'll see a lot of snow. Um, most people start the trail between March and uh, May if they're going northbound, which is what most hikers do. Um, and if you start in early March, then you can expect a hell of a lot of snow in the Sierra. This year was actually quite a low snow year. Uh, I started in um, mid-April. And by the time I got to the Sierra, there was still snow on um, the, the passes that you have to go over, but there was nothing too dangerous. I did have... Um, micro spikes um i only needed them twice and i didn't have an ice axe i didn't actually see anyone using an ice axe at all but yeah in the sierra there's um there's a lot more uh, sort of icy conditions there's a lot of alpine lakes which are really beautiful and um the best bath you'll ever have even if it is the shortest bath um and there's a lot of lush meadows there as well which are just sort of really gorgeous so the uh, the sierra contains um Yosemite National Park which the trail does actually pass through it doesn't go through Yosemite Valley which is um, what most people will be familiar with uh, kind of skirts around the edge but pass through some gorgeous valleys through there then North California so that's the third section uh, that gets a lot rockier so there's less snow because it's lower elevation um, and there's sort of fewer uh, fewer higher passes uh, loads of beautiful flower meadows there uh, that was probably the second most colourful section after the after the desert um, and a lot of lakes around there as well but it also got very humid at points there were some big forest areas in north north, north california um, and in there it could almost feel like a rainforest at times you just feel soaked in sweat from the minute you got up till the minute you went to bed <laughs> um and along with having a lot of forest, unfortunately, there's a lot of burn zones. So I think most people will be quite familiar with um, um, the West Coast of America, particularly California, experiencing a lot of uh, really severe wildfires, particularly over the past uh, five to ten years. And uh, the trail in North California, and including the midpoint of the trail, does actually pass through um, a very large burn zone that was caused by the Dixie Fire, which was in 2021. Uh, and that burnt uh, over 900,000 acres of land, uh, including four small towns as well, which is, is completely devastating. And when you're walking through it, it's just you just you cannot believe the scale of it. Um, but that terrain is, again, very different because you're basically walking on ash and soot and you just get completely filthy because everything's just just black. 
so that is a little bit depressing, but I think it's important to realize that reality of um, when you when you're doing these long hikes, or even if it's not a long hike, you kind of you have to accept the reality that a lot of our natural environments are um, unfortunately scarred um, from from natural disasters um, or man-made disasters as well. So the, the Dixie fire was actually caused by a tree falling on the power line. Um, but there's, there's fires that have been caused by all different reasons. Um, and then moving into Oregon after that, Oregon's known as the green, the green tunnel uh, because it is a lot of, a lot of forest and, uh, and just green land. But something that surprised me there was there's also a lot of volcanic rock. So a lot of the, um, the land in Oregon is on the, just basically solid lava, which was uh, something I wasn't expecting and uh, can be quite uh, hard on your ankles at times when you're just walking over just blocks of lava. Um, and then up into Washington, that was just stunning. I think Washington was probably the section of the trail that was the most um, awe-inspiring to me, I think. Uh, you're just walking through a lot of really expansive landscapes uh, with huge mountains on either side. Um, when you Google the Pacific Crest Trail, a lot of the pictures you'll see will be of um, large flower meadows with uh, huge mountains in the background. A lot of the time they're pictures from Washington. Um, and it's just really, really stunning. <laughs> so going back to the original question, yeah, you do pass through a lot of different terrains. Um, and that's uh, it's something that's, that's really nice about the trail, actually, is that you, well, you're covering such a long distance, it'd be uh, quite easy to get uh, get bored and start taking it for granted. But because it's changing all the time, you, you really don't. So, Becky, just looking at sort of the average distances you were covering per day, could you maybe speak to what you were covering and also, indeed, what you had in your mind from sort of an ideal completion time for the PCT? Yeah, so... When I'd been doing the research beforehand, reading about the trail, reading blogs, watching videos, most people tend to complete it in um, between three and a half and six months. So three and a half is mega speedy. Um, and there's people every year that are trying to set the FKT, the fastest known time, and they'll do it in like less than that. So I was never aiming for anything like that. Um, my ideal would, I always said when people asked me, is around five months. And I did it in sort of four and a half. So it was you know, just a little bit ahead of that. But I never really had a sort of a strict target that I was aiming for. Um, I quit my job before I left. So I w didn't have anything to rush back for with that. Um, the only limiting things really were how far my legs would carry me um, and, and how much money I had really. Um, but the first day I only did 15 miles. And I think I probably could have done more, but I didn't want to go out of the out of the stops too hard to be honest um something I was worried about before I set off was uh pushing myself too much too early on and getting injured which I'd heard other hikers doing um and depending on how severe the injury is that you get that could have been trip ending and um, that would have been pretty devastating so I tried to ease myself into it um but you very quickly just build up the stamina and, and the, the strength in your in your legs because you're just you're just doing the same thing every day so after the first couple of weeks I was doing um low 20s every day in terms of miles and then by a month in and for the rest of the, the trail 
uh, probably mid to high 20s, up to 30. I think the longest day I did was 33 miles. Um, and it becomes the same amount of effort to do 30 miles as it would have been for me to do 15 miles on that first day. Um, and you don't even really notice yourself getting increasing your your strength and your stamina it just just kind of happens you just suddenly realize oh I've walked 30 miles today and I feel I feel okay um but you you're walking for a long period of time it's not like you're doing those 30 miles in sort of four or five hours we were getting up at 5 30 in the morning walking by around 6 15 something like that and then obviously you have breaks throughout the day but we were setting up camps at 6 7 p.m so you, you're going for minus breaks probably 10 11 hours of the day of hiking so you, you really can cover a decent amount of distance um you were speaking earlier about the different types of terrain with um the desert and then some of the forest areas um what were the some of the risks from the indigenous am- animals on the pct so from bears to snakes to ticks even yeah so one of the the main things people ask me when they find out i've done the trail or um heard I've done this kind of hiking is did you see any bears um I did uh but you don't really feel you don't see them as a threat uh because the the bears that you encounter on the trail are are black bears so um the the bears people think of uh, as the scary ones are the grizzly bears they're they're the brown bears and there's you'd be very look well depending on how you see it lucky or unlucky to see one of those there's only about one and a half thousand of them left in um the the u.s outside of alaska and um so in like the lower 48 states uh and one's not been seen on the pct since 2010 so i was never really scared of, of seeing a grizzly the, the bears i saw were black bears like i say and um, they're quite skittish a lot of the time um they're often more scared of you than you would be of them um some of them are quite used to seeing humans so they will sort of stop and look inquisitively at you uh before scuttling off i saw two bears so the first one was um actually quite near a town uh, we, it was the day i got back onto trail after a town day uh, it was probably a couple of miles out of the town and it just ran straight across the trail and into the trees didn't look back just just ran straight off and then the second one was uh, in oregon and that was um I spotted it around 100 metres ahead of me up the trail, sort of quite a straight section of trail. And it was just eating some berries or something from a tree. And what you're supposed to do when you see the the black bears is try and make yourself as big as possible and as loud as possible. So you're supposed to shout, bang your poles, um, try and scare it away. But in reality, what most people do when they see one of these bears is they have the, the cameraman never dies mentality and video the bear, take pictures of it. And then try and scare it away, which you're probably not supposed to do because you're supposed to not make them uh, have sort of much contact with humans. Um, but yeah, you're supposed to make yourself big, bang your poles, and then and they usually just sort of look at you and then scuttle off. So I didn't really feel scared by by the bears. Um, I know a few people who heard bears coming into their um, their camping areas at night time. I think that if that had happened to me, I think I probably would have felt a little bit more worried, but it never did. Um, and there's certain precautions that you take to try and stop that from happening. So there's a section of the PCT where it's mandated to store your food in any sort of smelly items like toothpaste and stuff like that inside a bear canister. So that's a big plastic tub. Um, 
with um, sort of screw on lids um, that is very well pretty much impossible for a bear to open because i have such a good sense of smell if you just kept your food in your tent in like a dry bag or whatever it'd smell it it'd come in bother you in the night and, and get your food so so yeah so there's a large section of the sierra that it's mandated to use a bear camp to, to stop that from happening the other things that uh, we encountered i saw quite a few snakes um down in the desert there's some rattlesnakes uh which you don't want to you don't want to make them angry just if you see one um from a safe distance you can stamp your feet on the ground because they um, sense the vibrations through the ground they don't have external ears so if you make yourself loud to a snake it's not going to hear you um but just sort of stamping your feet until it sort of scuttles off um and then most of the snakes i saw were garter snakes so they're they're non-poisonous snakes that will just quite often slide between your legs when you're walking on the path um, which can make you jump but it's nothing more threatening than that. I didn't um, get any ticks, luckily. I know a couple of people that did, but I don't know anyone that got any serious um, sort of tick bites, um, which is fortunate. The other things that I saw were deer. They were more of a, a pest than anything, to be honest, which sounds awful. But the first few times you see them, they're you know really amazing. You can get really close to them, particularly in um, the national parks where they are more used to seeing uh, seeing people. But then when they start trying to come and eat the handles of your poles to lick the salt off them in the middle of the night um, or scuffling around your campsite or uh, licking up the area where you peed in the night before, it, it gets a little bit a little bit annoying because I just disturb your sleep. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, there was probably a period of the trial where I was seeing deer nearly every day, so you do get, you do get really used to them. Um, mice were something that... I never had an issue with, but I know several hikers that had their tent nibbled through by mice that were trying to get in to get get their food. And then the only other things I saw that I can think of were a couple of scorpions um, in a couple of the pit toilets. And then on my very first day, around eight miles in, I saw a tarantula right in front of me on the trail, which was not something I'd been uh, anticipating to see. And luckily, I never saw one again, so I'm not a not a huge fan of spiders. <laughs> So Becky, just as you were hiking, you know, you, you've got this epic 2,650 mile trek, you know, the weather fronts coming in, going out, hot weather, cold weather, wet weather, windy weather. Could you, could you maybe speak to the variety of weather that you saw and, and indeed maybe what was the worst weather you experienced? 2022 on the whole was a pretty good year for weather. Um, in terms of the trail we were very lucky so I only actually got rained on about five or six times I think um which was very different to when I did the West Highland Way where it rained for the entire time so it was uh it was quite nice to not have to worry about drying your waterproofs and stuff every day my tent did get wet quite a lot but that was mainly just because of condensation if we'd camped near water um, and most of the time, to be honest, I wasn't even using my tent. We were just what's called cowboy camping. So just camping out under the stars um, because the vast majority of the time it was dry. So, yeah, so mainly dry, uh, pretty hot in the desert, but then also in North California as well, because by the time I was in NorCal, it was the middle of summer. It was like late July um, and that was getting up to sort of 
40 degrees Celsius a day, uh, which was could be pretty grim. Um, but the worst weather was probably the storm that happened when I was in, I think it was, it's, I was still in North California at that point, and it was it happened overnight, and it was just absolutely apocalyptic. It was a proper thunder and lightning storm. Um, I was in, we'd put our tents up luckily that night before uh, the rain had started, and I was lying in my tent, and I could feel the ground vibrating with the, the strength of the thunder. It was just, it was biblical. And then the lightning, even with your eyes shut, it was sort of flashing in the backs of your eyes. I didn't get much sleep that night. Um, uh, quite a few people had flooded tents because it was just just so crazy. But that was that was the only sort of big storm, really. There were a couple of other smaller thunderstorms that passed over in about half an hour. That one lasted pretty much all night. But um, on the whole, I was really lucky. The, the heat was more of an issue than uh, than the water. Uh, yeah, heat and humidity. So. Um... For somebody wanting to to do this epic trail, myself included, if I'm honest, um, what elements um, or level would you suggest um, from a bushcraft or map reading or even just a general outdoor experience um, perspective? I would say that you probably don't need as much experience as you think. The In terms of navigation, there is basically no navigation required it's very minimal the vast majority of hikers on the trail use an app called far out which um, anyone that's done a long distance hike might be familiar with because um, you can get most of the popular long distance trails in um or particularly in the us i think there's quite a lot of european ones are going on it now as well um you can download the map for for the trail on that app uh, and it's basically like google maps it shows your uh, your little marker point of your position even when you've not got signal it still works and then you're you, the trail is just marked as a really long red line um so as long as you're on the red line you know that you're in the right place and along when you're on the trail there's physical markers as well called um waypoints or uh, the americans call them blazers and um it's just a, a little symbol of the pct or it might even just say pct um stuck to a tree or on a on like a, a signpost if you're in a national park that's just pointing you in the right direction so as long as you've got some awareness of what's going on around you you can't go too far wrong um in terms of other bits of preparation I just, the main thing i'd say really is having buying your gear in advance and just being familiar with it before the trail so you wouldn't want to turn up and not know how to put your tent up on the first night that'd be a embarrassing and B not very safe um but yeah I think it's important to test out your gear because as amazing as it might sound sound online um or in the video that you watched of some vlogger that's done various trails and happens to be sponsored by the company when you're using it in practice it it might not be as good as uh, as good as you thought it would be or it might just not be suitable for you I met the group of friends that I made on the trail. We all use different tents. We all absolutely loved our tents and we said we'd never use anything else. But, you know, it's just, it comes down to personal preference in the end. And I think you only work out what what you prefer by trying out that bit of gear or whatever it is. Uh, other bits of preparation, I'd say, is just have some basic 
level of knowledge of um, staying safe in um, in the wilderness. So I talked a little bit about knowing how to uh, manage your food when you're in bear country and things like that. So knowing how to store your food safely, um, knowing a little bit about storm safety. So, you know, if there's a massive lightning storm going on, don't go and climb to the highest point of the tree line and walk along the ridge to get a cool view of the storm because you could get struck by lightning. and then things like water preparation and um, and carrying your water safely as well. So just, yeah, basic backcountry um, skills, really, but nothing more than that. And then the leave no trace principles, which um, some people may be familiar with or maybe not. That's just a set of principles about saying keep the outdoors as a, as a, a wild space. Don't go carving your name into trees. Make sure you're burying your human waste safely and carrying your toilet paper out with you yeah it sounds grim but you wouldn't want to be camping on top of a load of dirty toilet paper that someone from the night before has left um but the main thing really is just go out and hike build up a bit of fitness but more importantly i think build up the confidence to know that you can go and do something that may sound completely unachievable and uh, overwhelming um if on the first day of the trail I'd thought right I've done 15 miles only 2,635 to go I don't I don't think I would have made it you have to sort of break it down into smaller smaller chunks than that um to make it more manageable uh but yeah I think just getting out and hiking testing your gear building your confidence and I met people on the trail that have that had all levels of experience uh there was I met someone who was doing the PCT for the third time um I met people who had done the other two main popular long distance trails in the US which are the Appalachian Trail which is on the west coast and then the Continental Divide Trail so the PCT the Continental Divide Trail and the AT together make up what's called the Triple Crown so people that had done all three trails are known as Triple Crowners um so I met people that were doing the PCT to complete their Triple Crown and I also met people that all they'd done before was go on short weekend camping trips with a family or friends and the PCT was the first sort of step into wild camping or anything they'd ever done and you know those people still made it they just developed their experience along the way so uh, I would say yeah don't be put off by thinking you don't have any or enough experience. Becky could you speak to some of the interesting characters you met along along the way? Oh there's so many (laughs) Yeah, you passing through a lot of these small, small towns in you know the the back end of uh, of California and stuff. You do meet some interesting people. Uh, a lot of the trail angels who um, either gave me and my friends rides into town or um, let us stay at their house. Um, they were incredible people. Um, there's a couple who live in um, San Diego who help hikers out before they even start the trail. So everyone on the trail has a trail name. So you, it's it sounds it might sound a bit childish, but once you're in once you're in the hiking community, it's just something that happens. Um, so there's a a couple who are in their sixties, and they're called Scout and Frodo. That's their trail names. Who every year will host PCT hikers at their house before the hikers start the trail. So uh, they've got a house in the suburbs of San Diego with quite a big garden, and they host up to thirty hikers a night just let them camp in their garden. They feed them, drive them to the gear store to get last minute gear, drive them to the supermarket, 
just chat with them about um, anything the hikers are worried about. Because for these guys, the guys have already done the PCT before. Um, and I stayed with them before I started. And it was just a great place to meet other hikers as well that are, know exactly how you're feeling you're sort of on the edge of this incredible adventure. You're, you're scared, you're nervous, but you're also really excited. So meeting other people before I even start, which was really nice. Uh, so, yeah, they were, they were uh, a great pair, that couple. Um, another character is uh, the legend that is Mayor Max. So this guy, or dog, should I say, is the mayor of Idlewild. So Idlewild, which I think I mentioned earlier, is one of the, the first towns you pass through in um, Southern California. Or, well, you pass near it and then most people go into it. And the mayor of the town is a dog uh, called Max. He's a, a, <laughs> a golden retriever. So unfortunately, Mayor Max II, who was the, the, um, the mayor at the time I passed through the town in early May, he unfortunately died in July this year. So uh, that was that was very sad, and there was it was a huge loss to not only Idlewild but the uh, the PCT community. Um, but he has since been replaced by Mayor Max the Third. But I did get to meet Mayor Max the Second while I was in town. He's uh, he's a very sociable sociable mayor, and uh, he loves loved meeting people. Uh, another pretty cool person that I met was um, a lady called Morgan, who um, she herself had done the PCT, I think in 2019, I think. I can't remember what year she did it. Um, anyway, she's an American lady who's a physiotherapist, and she actually set up her own business um, business based around hi- helping PCT hikers. Um, so it's called Blaze Physio. And it was the first year this year that she'd run her business on the trail. But she basically drove up trail following the main bubble of hikers um, and would stop at various points in the, the popular towns that hikers would stay in and just help you out with any injuries that you had. So she helped me out when I had shin splints. She helped out people that had got uh, rolled ankles or um, she even had to send a few people to get uh, x-rays because they've got stress fractures, things like that. But she saved a lot of people's hikes just by giving them basic advice on how to manage MSK injuries, showing people how to safely tape muscle injuries um, and things like that. Um, and you just sort of paid her a PayPal donation for, for her time and her assessment. Um, but I think it's a pretty, pretty cool business idea. And I know that she's going to do it again next year and hopefully um, expand to cover cover other trails as well. Um, and she's yeah just doing it all out the back of a, a van that she's kitted out. So, uh, yeah, pretty cool character. Um, so finally, as we come into to finish, could you talk about any revelations that you had once you'd completed this amazing hike? Um, also, any take-home messages you'd give to people wanting to do? Yeah. Um, I would say, I think the, the main revelation for me, which actually came rather than being after the trail, was probably just before the end of the trail, uh, was when I was probably about 100 miles from the end. And so by that point, you're kind of thinking of, well, all the time you're thinking what you're going to do after trail and sort of thinking, oh, no, the end, the end is nigh. What am I going to do after this? Um, but around 100 miles before the end of trail, I found out that the last 30 miles of the trail before you hit the, the monument at the USA-Canada border that section had been shut because of uh, forest fires in the area. So 
I remember when me and my friends found out and we were absolutely gutted because for for weeks you just you in your mind you're thinking of reaching that monument you see hundreds of pictures online like on Instagram before you even do the trail of people celebrating at this monument it just becomes like a sort of a, a beacon for you and um something you think about a lot so finding out that the we weren't be we weren't gonna be able to get to it because there was no sign of that last bit of trail open at any time soon was um initially really devastating but we managed to find a, a way of still crossing the border we actually got off trail around 60 miles before the end at a point called rainy pass which is um, one of the main roads that the trail crosses um hitched 30 miles west to a lake called ross lakes at uh, ross lake sorry and then kayaked up that lake um about 20 30 miles and it actually crosses the border the lake so we kayaked across the border rather than hiking across it which was a pretty cool way, way to end and so around that time when we were realizing we weren't going to be able to hit the actual monument um, and trying to plan what we were going to do instead I realized that this whole thing was never about walking every step of the trail it wasn't about you know making sure I had walked every single of those 2,653 miles. Um, it was about the experience as a whole, uh, the people that I met, uh, the unexpected encounters or the unexpected things that happened. And, and that was what makes it an adventure. So no matter how much you plan, you don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, something like that was completely out of my control. I can't control forest fires. And, it still still was an incredible experience, even though I couldn't walk all of those all of those miles. And at some point, I will go back and do those last sixty. But yeah, I realised that it wasn't it wasn't about just the miles. Um, I think take home messages really. I'd say if if you want to go and do something like this, you know, it doesn't have to be this exact thing. It doesn't even have to be a long distance hike. Whatever it is that you want to go and do that would be an adventure for you. Life isn't gonna just stop so you can go and do it you have to you have to make it happen yourself um that could mean massive compromises with you know work or whatever else is going on in your life but you've got to go and, and make these opportunities happen for yourself if you're fortunate enough to be able to uh, and the final thing i'd say really i think is don't be put off by fear or lack of experience or lack of confidence when I finished that trail, I felt like I could do anything. But at the start, I, I didn't know if I was going to finish it. I, I don't say to anyone that, that I was confident about completing it or not because because I, I didn't didn't know if I would. But yeah, don't don't let fear and, and lack of confidence hold you back. Becky, listen, that's fantastic, and just a really almost a stoic principle, really, of sort of controlling what you can and letting the rest kind of happen around you but just being at peace with that um i think that's a fantastic principle to uh, to end with we just want to thank you for your time becky and your reflections because they're both fascinating and insightful so thank you thank you very much um i honestly could sit and talk about it all day so thank you very much for having me on and let me have the opportunity to bang on about it a bit more <laughs> Listen, it's fantastic. And I think what we'll do is we'll put the links to the PCT in the show notes uh, together with blogs. Um, 
and indeed recollections by people that have completed the trip. So if you want to head to the show notes, you can see more on the Pacific Crest Trail there. So that brings us into close for another session. Uh, please do head over to our website at World Extreme Medicine for more information. Indeed, on our podcast, our webinars, which are just about to come up as well. And indeed, a card array of courses. Thanks, guys, and we'll catch you soon. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.